Hello, good day, and welcome back to another episode of Farewell. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. There is a book that I've read at the beginning of each of the last three winters, and it is called, you would never guess, Wintering by Catherine May. I read it every year because it's a great book, and it's a delight to read, but also because I'm not so good at winter. I don't deal with the cold and darkness that well. And then on top of that, I think the other part of it is that I'm just not that good at slowing down. If you think of the growth equation, which is what this podcast used to be called and is the name of the newsletter that I'm sure many of you subscribe to, it says that growth equals stress plus rest. And the rest side of that equation is important, but it can often feel unproductive or useless. And when there's so much to do these days and so much noise, not doing anything, which is what rest can feel like, can be difficult. We are a society that over-indexes on stress and under-appreciates rest. And so I get caught in this slipstream of go, go, go. And then, three years ago, I read Catherine May's book, the subtitle of which is The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. And what Catherine's book did was it totally reoriented the way I thought about rest and recovery and reoriented how I thought about my relationship to time. One of her main points is that time moves in cycles. There are periods of growth, and we can think of this in seasons, like spring and summer. And then there are times of decay and recuperation, which are more like fall and winter. This is true not just of meteorological seasons, but all the metaphorical seasons of our life. Because maybe you don't live somewhere where it's cold and dark in the winter. But as Catherine says, everyone goes through a winter at some point, and some winters happen in the sun. You get injured, or you get sick, or you get laid off, or you get fired, or you're going through a breakup, or a divorce, or any time that life gets heavy. Not to get all Game of Thronesy on you, but winter really is always coming. And yet, we are not really equipped to deal with these winters because they are not societally or culturally accepted. And so her book is all about the practice of what she calls wintering. That is for both seasonal winters and for these hard lifetimes. And wintering is a practice. And like any other practice, it's one you have to work on. And for those of us who want to perform at our best, wintering should be a practice that we consider as important as our other practices, like our movement practice or eating practice or even our spiritual practice, so that we know how to rest and recover and so that when seasons do change and a period of growth comes back around, we're ready to take advantage of it. So maybe that gives you a sense of why Catherine's book knocked me on my ass. And if not, then maybe today's conversation will. I hope that it does. Catherine, how are you doing? Thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very well, thank you. It's just, uh, the sun's just setting here. So I'm getting that very dark, wintry feeling closing in around me. So it feels very appropriate to to be talking today. (laughs) I feel like we need more voices on winter. I feel like this, uh, you know, as the point you make in your book, it's a time of year that we so often um, are hesitant to embrace. And so I think Mm. having someone like you help us embrace it is great. Is great. Um, It really, it surprises me how many people still say that wintering changed their mind about winter. Like I, I, I never wrote it expecting to find so many people that hated it so much. Like it, it seemed obvious to me that winter was really good. Um, and no, people really, really don't like it, do they? <laughs> and of course, I'm on this conversion mission to like, you know, get everyone to, to fall in love with it. Um, 
but yeah, there's a you know there's a real feeling of desolation for a lot of people at this this time of year, and the cold, the darkness, the change in pace feels very menacing to to loads of folks. So mm-hmm. I, I I actually really love being able to, to to flip that narrative a bit and to to encourage people to to see the good side of of all of this darkness. Yeah. So for those who haven't read um, one of your books, Wintering, it is what are some of the reasons you give for sort of embracing that these, mm. these things that we are often so hesitant to embrace? Well, I, I think the big one for me is it's just inevitable and we can put so much energy into fighting winter and pretending it's not going to happen. And it happens either way. And then we're confronted with a choice, which is that for, you know, nearly half the year, we try not to engage with what's happening in the world outside or we learn to lean into it. And for me, winter is part of the very cyclical experience of time that's really natural to us as humans. And that dark time of the year does, it is supposed to change our behaviour. You know, life isn't supposed to continue as if it's summer all the way through the year. And that is an invitation to retreat, to rest, all the R's actually, to restore, to replenish, to reflect, like all of the very gentle um, renewing things happen during winter, which leaves us ready to go out in the springtime, kind of back into the world again and back into growth. But both are so important. We need growth, but we also need that that kind of tilling through of what's happened already that comes in winter and that sense that we're evaluating it and reflecting on it and, and figuring out what to keep, what to throw away, where, where to go next. It's, it's such a wonderful time of year for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love the the notion in your book that I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to quite get the line right, but something about some winters happen in the sun. And your point mm-hmm. is that even though there is a a temporal winter on the calendar. There are plenty of winters throughout your life, whether that be, you know, a, a period of mental turmoil or struggle. And I'm also thinking about it in the context of we have a lot of athletes who listen to this podcast, right? And one thing yeah, we're always talking yeah. about is the importance of rest and recovery, which is really hard yeah. for someone who is, you know, is yeah. an athlete, is used to that striving for per- performance. And then once yeah. the performance is over, like letting your body recuperate. Um, in a way definitely so yeah it's a I mean I I kind of I'm always treading that line between literal winter and metaphorical winter mm-hmm. um and and they do often coincide you know those dark times of the year do bring all kinds of problems of their own but also sometimes you know our winters happen in, in midsummer and that is I think you know that it being forced to slow down which is what's happening is so challenging for all of us. I can imagine for athletes, it's really difficult because often people go into that because they can't sit still in the first place. Um, You know, there are periods of injury, there are periods of failure, there are periods of poor mental health that that come, Mm -hmm. you know, in in that that area. Um, But, but, you know, actually, I, I just think that as a society, we are now becoming more and more averse to any kind of letting up of the pace. And, and that if we don't feel like we're doing all the time and being seen to be doing all the time, that we don't have any value. Hmm. And it's a, it's a really, I just think it's a really important moment in our history to start to be kinder to ourselves about that. Mm-hmm. Do you talk about how we always are expected to be doing 
things, right? Like doing, doing constantly always about progress, development, productivity. Um, (laughs) I also think there's like, uh, nowadays because of social media, there's a feeling sometimes that if you produce something or make something and it's not, you don't post about it or it's not in the world, it doesn't quite really exist. It doesn't feel real. And again, I think there's a parallel to, um, athletes because sometimes you when you're training for something like the i think about the olympics right like you're training for four years and then you might have you know if you're a sprinter you might have 10 (laughs) seconds and that's it and so i also think about how writing a book probably took you you know multiple years and you yeah exactly (laughs) and you may not have something to show for that until it's actually out and so i'm curious how you think about productivity or a sense of achievement and like being able to stick through that grind when there isn't necessarily a finished product to put out into the world and and have some sort of feedback about how you did or even just attention that makes it feel real and Mm. shared and and reciprocal reciprocal in a way no for sure i mean i you know as having been i don't know a writer for like 20 years now um most of the time i was writing while i still had a full-time job and so for me, like my writing was kind of squeezed into weird little corners of my day. Like I'd get up really early to write, for example. And that felt really productive at the time because I was, I was kind of wringing this extra bit out of my day rather than, you know, I'm, you know, not using those lovely morning hours <laughs> where I could have just been having a cup of tea and, and watching the TV. And I, and since, you know, I've been able to give up full time work to concentrate on my writing. I actually can't write anymore in a day. And so for a long time, I felt like I was wasting time. You know, like I felt like I wasn't doing enough, that I was being lazy, that I should be writing double mm-hmm. the amount, you know, <laughs> because I have mm-hmm. more time. And it, and it doesn't really work like that. You know, there's only so much you can give in a day, which I'm sure is quite similar to athletes as well. You know, mm-hmm. you can only squeeze so much out of your brain in a day you can only squeeze so much out of your muscles in a day like you have to rest or change up the action mm-hmm. either way I think that's a huge challenge to start learning to in- to value the intrinsic worth of mm-hmm. what you do rather than to value the time spent at the desk because actually what I know very clearly is if I show up at my desk for too long it actually takes away from my Mm. ability to write because I need to get outside. I need to walk. I need to see other people. I need to read books. I need to visit stuff, you know, like all of that stuff feeds into writing. And it's, it's a really hard lesson to learn because everything about my life so far has told me the opposite that, you know, that I need to sit down, show up, Mm. be visibly working. And a lot of my work now looks a lot like leisure time. Um, mm-hmm. and I, yeah, I wrestle with a few demons over that. I won't lie to you. It's, it's tricky. Do you, that, that makes me want to ask you, um, how you try to teach those lessons to your son. You have a, a one, a son, right? Mm-hmm. Named Bert. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 11. Yeah. 11. And it, because I think those are really important lessons, but I feel like so much, mm-hmm. especially in the West, so much of our culture is about constantly progressing and constantly being productive. And so I'm curious how you think about while he's probably getting those messages from the culture, how you think about instilling this other, this other important part of like, it is important to slow down and like, you know, you can't study for a test for 12 hours straight because it's, you're going to have diminishing Mm. returns. 
Yeah, and in fact, he had a teacher quite recently who sort of basically said, you can never be doing enough. There's always something mm-hmm. else you can do. And I I really took offence at that. Like, that, that actually made me furious because I could remember getting the same message from my teachers at school. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, as like a really sort of ambitious, hardworking student, that was really toxic because... I would keep going and going. I, I now realise that it wasn't aimed at people like me. It was aimed at the people that they felt weren't doing enough already. But I never heard that from anyone. I never heard anyone say, you've done plenty, well done, go and have a lovely time now. Like, do whatever you like, you've you've done it. And I try really hard to say that to him, actually, to, to say, this is all you need to do. Like, this is this is the most you need to do today. And if you've done that, you've done really well. And like, let's acknowledge when you cross that line and let's like, let's celebrate, let's congratulate you at that point and show you why it's really important to take a break. Yeah. You mentioned at the very beginning the word cyclical, which is one of the main themes in, or one of the big themes in wintering is this idea that thinking about winter and wintering can change our notions of time and our relationship yeah. to time and make it more it's more of a cyclical rather than just a, a linear understanding. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to say that we can hold a lot of different conceptions of time all at once. And mm-hmm. what we've tried to do really recently is is just reduce it down to that one type of time, you know, that, that very yes. linear time that you can see laid out in a grid on your calendar every day and everything is kind of like measured off in, in increasingly small increments as we try and fit more in. And if we turn to, to cyclical time for a start that takes us into the the understanding of time that most human beings will have had for most of our time on the planet. You know, they didn't have clocks. What they did understand was the patterning of the days, the months, the years. And that's profoundly connected to nature because the months are are guided to a great extent by the movement of the moon. The year is, is determined by the way the sun behaves in the sky and its movement across the sky during the year. And the days are are determined by patterns of light and dark, which are not consistent throughout the year. And our bodies have evolved to respond to those patterns and to to understand them and to change across the year. I mean, there there was a very recent piece of research that showed that um, we tend to sleep up to two hours more in winter than summer Mm. if we're left to our own devices and if we don't use an alarm clock. Like we are adapted to a very different understanding of time. And what cyclical time shows us is that there are bigger patterns and movements across the course of our lives than would be suggested at all. Like it's not one upward striving. It's a much different pattern to that, much more different pattern to that. And so we will see if we start to watch those patterns that there are times when we are growing and burgeoning and reaching out into the world and we're being intensely creative and generative and productive. Um, But there are also equally natural times when we are not doing that, when we're consolidating, when we're drawing in, when we're perhaps even, you know, kind of protecting ourselves after something going wrong. And... What we do at the moment is only acknowledge the first type of thing. We only think that's any good, that growth is the only thing that's worthwhile. But that just really is harmful mm-hmm. because it, it what it means is that we're denying this completely natural other half, which is actually essential to the growth because of all of the all of kind of 
the, the secret work that goes on during those darker, more difficult times, then bolsters us in the next phase and inspires us actually and pushes us onwards. And so when we when we turn to the cyclical time, the year already shows us that. It gives us a model for that. We've only got to watch the way that trees grow, the way that plants grow, the way that animals behave across the, the course of the year to have this model offered to us of, of how to understand time in a much more restorative, protective and, and sort of generous way. There's, a, there's so much abundance in that model, whereas... When we when we're trying to grow all the time, everything just feels scarce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's be- beautifully put. And do you have ways to? I know in in Enchanted you write. I think it's in Enchanted you write about how you basically had to write yourself a note reminding yourself to go for a walk, right? <laughs> yeah. And you write about how it's very easy to get lost in sort of the daily, just getting things done, and you yeah. can forget to sort of take the space. And I imagine that's the case with exactly what you're talking about too with time and like getting caught in the linear sense of it and the 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 growth for growth sake and not remembering to oh i do need to rest i do need to recuperate (laughs) so do you have ways of reminding yourself of that or you just at this point you've been practicing that for a while so is it Hmm. more natural for you I think I think I kind of flip that in a way. Like I, I just try and notice the pull more mm-hmm. than I used to. So I used to try and power on through and, and impose my own, you know, routines and structures on top of the mm-hmm. year. Um, and now I've I've kind of noticed that actually if I if I tune into it, there's there's a definite pull on me in, in different directions. And so in the summer, I mean, by the by the kind of midpoint of summer, by the by midsummer's day, I've always began to notice that I feel almost like feverish in my, in my kind of desire to do things. Like my my ambition starts overrunning, and I'm full of ideas, and I feel like quite overwrought and exhausted. And I've learned that if I can be with the sunset on on midsummer evening that kind of breaks in me, you know, like I, I can ride out that, that part of the year and I, and I can feel myself beginning to power down and, and like mm-hmm. get more restful <laughs> towards the winter. And I, and I now notice that in the winter as well, that, that things feel like begin to feel really crawlingly slow by the middle of December and everything feels kind of quite blocked up and I don't know, like yeah. oh, heavy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then, then there's this rise again that that comes after New Year and as we move into the, the year. So I, I try and watch it. But I, you know, as I as I sort of wrote about at the beginning of Enchantment, sometimes you need to remind yourself that yeah. of what you've been before. And I, I, what the situation I was in there was that I'd found that I, you know, we hadn't really been allowed out much in mm-hmm. in the pandemic, and you know, hadn't been allowed to go for the long walks that I love to go to or to travel. Mm-hmm. And by the time we were allowed again, I kind of couldn't remember how to do it almost. Like I, I've said before, it felt like someone had put a speed bump outside my front door and I, I could get out, but it just felt that bit harder than it used to. Yes. And yes. so I needed to nudge myself to just take a walk every day. You talk in your book a lot about rituals and the power of ritual. Why, what do rituals signify? Why are they important? Why should people think about incorporating them into their mm. lives? Well, I think I should first say that I was traditionally very resistant to ritual and I felt like it was this sort of silly, embarrassing thing that was very much to be avoided. <laughs> but I, I, 
notice how come why did you why did you think that I was I was brought up in like a very secular environment and I think you know in my 20s like I felt like I had to banish all irrationality from my life Mm. but I also began to feel like something was missing honestly and, and that it was really difficult to make space to process emotions and it was and I had like no way to mark the key points in my life like the rites of passage that were so important to me I I didn't have a way to to sort of display them to myself almost Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and when I was researching wintering like I you know I visited Stonehenge at at midwinter and and various other things and and realized that what turning points those rituals can be and how in a really short space of time they open up this space to think honestly and and actually to feel and and so I began to to really begin you know making my own rituals and and to for me it's about marking the progress of the year and marking the key moments in my life I think ritual is a set of actions you do with your body that leaves an open gap for your feelings in that moment to come in and you bring a different self to it every time. And that self is always welcome in a good ritual. Hmm. So do you have daily, do you have daily rituals? I have a small one every morning. I step outside every day. It's one of the first things I do. And I, I, it doesn't take long, but I just breathe the air, just smell it. Just like you can tell so much about the day, um, just from that little sampling. Um, and that, that's just, it's just like a little moment that, that helps to kind of get my feet on the ground before I get into a big hurry about about all the things I have to do in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also now, like I do mark all of the key points of the year, the equinoxes, the solstices, um, and, and, and other kind of key moments in the year too that feel significant mm. to me. Mm. I interviewed the chief druid, Philip, as he was at the time, Philip Cargon for wintering, and he said... The thing about those having those beats in the year is that if you're if you're having a hard time, you've only ever got a few weeks until the next gathering, the next moment mm. when you know that you'll you'll be soothed. And he, and he said, like in really dark times, that can that can just help you to keep going. But he said, and what's interesting is that when you reach those points and look back to the last one, as you kind of naturally do you can't help but notice how far you've come and how you've changed and what's gone on in that time. And so when life feels very static, it's actually a good way to show yourself that there's still movement, even if it feels glacially slow. And I, I think that's really beautiful, just having that structure that you can fall back into. You have this um, a couple passages in Enchanted where you're talking about walking and they so succinctly summed up what I often experience running. And... Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you could share, if if that's okay, off the cuff, sort yeah. of like talk about that experience. You talk about how there's almost three phases you go through mm. when you're walking. Mm. Yeah. So for particularly for a long walk, I mean, my book before wintering was called The Electricity of Every Living Thing. And it was about me walking long distance across the Southwest Coast Path as a totally inexperienced long distance walker. Mm-hmm. And I learned during that time that there's this very sort of... Um, distinct three phases that I go through for a long walk and and so the first one is like discomfort for about the first hour like I'm you know my boots are laced too tight or they're too loose or there's something in my shoe or like there's a seam that's bothering me and I'm thinking oh this is awful like why am I doing 
this, you know, it takes ages to get your muscles warmed up, I think, and that, that's part of it. Like, everything feels a bit achy and uncomfortable. And then then you reach a phase of feeling almost like high, you know. I call yeah. it having popcorn yeah. brain. And I'm <laughs> like, all these ideas are coming to me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, this is great. Oh, this is amazing. But I'm still very conscious of that. You know, I'm still yes. thinking, like, really consciously. But if I push it even further, like, into that third hour or longer, um, then I... Like, it's almost like I'm obliterated. Like, I almost lose my whole sense of self in that. And I, I'm I'm not even, like, I was going to say I feel very empty, but it's not that. Like, I'm just, I'm not conscious. Like, my conscious brain has switched off. And I often don't remember those parts of a long walk. And, I, you know, I think partly it's like depleted glycogen levels. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I also think there's something about like the deep, soothing effect of those rhythms of like your feet mm-hmm. moving. Um, and, the, and those are the points that afterwards I realise have led to great insight. <laughs> Is that similar to running? That's really, I mean, I've, I've run a bit, but only for like half an hour. <laughs> yes. Yeah, especially when running longer distance, it's, you know, the first bit is always bargaining. It's like, oh, am I really, <laughs> do I really right. need to be doing this? Yeah. Like it's very yeah. windy. It's too hot. I should be resting. And then eventually it's like a couple miles in, you get warmed up and you're like, okay, yeah, now you're feeling great. Yeah. And then eventually you get to a place, I find sometimes, it doesn't happen all the time, mm-hmm. where you just kind mm-hmm. of are coasting. Like you said, yeah. when um, nothing happens yeah. here, I think, in the book. And it's just like, mm-hmm. your body's just sort of, it's finally it's stopped bargaining. Yeah, yeah, it's accepted that you're yeah. going for a run, you're warmed up, and you just sort of feel like your brain mm. and your body sync up in a way that I that I find very wonderful. I, I think those three phases are really relevant to meditation as well, actually. Again, the bargaining, <laughs> the bargaining yeah. comes up. Um, and, and really having to tell yourself that it will be good if you sit down, like almost having to project yourself into the future to acknowledge that that you will like it eventually mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and then and then you you know you do enter those very sort of lucid fluid states more often than not in in meditation and very rarely you get to that pu- that point past there where you feel like you've dissolved into the into the world um and often that's when you you kind of completely lose track of time you know mm-hmm. you, you're not sure if minutes or days have passed yeah and it's much rarer it's much harder to get there and I I think for me like it's almost more reliable walking you know the, the mm. walking if I walk for long enough it will take me there mm. and I and that's so important to say for all the people that will always say to you oh I couldn't meditate because I couldn't sit still and it's yes. like a, I'm an extremely fidgety person too. You know? yeah, yeah. Like, let's just get that right out there. I struggle to sit still. I, you know, it's it's not impossible. But also walking is a really valid way to meditate. Swimming is a really valid way to meditate. Dancing is a really valid way to meditate. Maybe running. Well, that sounds really hard, but um, <laughs> sure. Like, if that's your thing. Yes. <laughs> how did you come to meditation originally? Oh, I, I'd wanted to do it for a long time, but it took a complete personal crisis. I'd, I really had uh, succumbed to like the worst anxiety that mm. I'd ever lived through. Like I couldn't, I couldn't be in my own home. I couldn't function. Mm. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. 
and I think before then I'd like been trying to choose the right meditation course and never found the one that I just thought yeah yeah that's the one but I saw a, a notice in the library and I, I was at that stage I was like screw it like I'll, I'll yeah. take whatever I'll, I'll go to whatever course it is and I t- it was a weekend course and I got this immediate sense of relief like it didn't cure me it didn't solve everything Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I was reaching for something that could that I could do you know like there was nothing I could do about this anxiety Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know I didn't uh, you know my doctor wouldn't give me medication and like I don't know why but that was how the (laughs) you know that's how my doctor's surgery was at the time and I it was it was pure desperation but I think that let me really surrender to it you know and let me really reach for this thing that might help um and very quickly I realized that it was it really did so much for me and, and has carried on doing it ever since mm. yeah and you write so wonderfully and enchanted about um the ways in which you think before you had Bert, you said you practice 20 minutes a day, twice a day. And then you (laughs) write so wonderfully, which is, I I think this is a really important thing about how Mm. difficult it becomes. The ways we hope to practice run up against the real responsibilities that comprise (laughs) getting through a day. And especially historically for women, because they've carried so much more of the domestic labor. Um, And and so I'm curious how you think through that now in terms of like, I mm. obviously this practice is important to you, but you maybe don't have the time you wanted to have for it in the way it's typically packaged yeah. as you have to do it twice a day for 20 minutes. Um, yeah, I had to, I had to rethink it completely because I was taught very clearly that the, the rigidity of the structure was what was important. And so you had to sit, you know, every single day, you didn't miss a single one, you didn't eat before you did it, you know, there were all these kind mm-hmm. of strictures. And I think what really broke that for me was it, it was just impossible, like it was impossible with a small baby, it's impossible even with an 11 year old for me to do that. And so again like I've learned to find the corners <laughs> that let me do yeah. that um and I've learned to let it be a regular I've learned that it's not the worst thing in the world if I miss a day or even a week or even a month like I can always mm. go back to it I'm not breaking anything and I've also learned to understand as, as I just said like that so many things can be meditation and that's done me so much good like finding the spaces that are meditative for me in that moment and allowing myself to like flow mindfully into them rather than saying, no, 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 this isn't valid. Like your experience isn't valid. Mm-hmm. And I also wrote an enchantment about how I really want us to begin to acknowledge the spiritual practice behind a lot of everyday things, you know, like, and the example I gave was, you know, being a carer and having a, a child who wakes up twice a night for x number of years you know they say in the books it's going to finish after a few months it never does for anyone and actually like really honoring the the discipline and the love and the passion that it takes to get up in the middle of the night and to soothe someone lovingly and kindly rather than coming in angry like we could teach a lot of the world's spiritual leaders a great deal from that practice alone Mm. and most women I know are doing it and a lot of men too like it that is not a degraded thing that is not a failure that is not an unspiritual moment that is a hugely beautiful 
generous part of what keeps the the, the love in this world flowing around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would I've, I'm learning to acknowledge those those things in me that that I do that actually are are not just functional. They're more than that. They're much more mindful than that. And I I think yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to pass that on. Yes, that's yes, yes. That's, it reminds me of that idea that there's the uh, formal meditation and informal meditation. And formal is when you're obviously sitting and then, but the real practice of formal meditation is to allow you to be able to then have to incorporate that into your life. And so I think the idea of, which is the informal practice. So the idea of seeing the ways in which so many of those activities can be meditative mm. or allow you to practice the sort of values that meditation is allowing you to practice is a wonderful sure. connection. Yeah. And, and, you know, as far back as the Vedas, there was this acknowledgement of like householder meditations versus monastic medica- meditations. I'm, I'm vastly simplifying it, but, but yes, the idea yes. that people engaged in everyday life would approach this differently and didn't need to, uh, you know, tackle it in a very monastic, very formal way. And that there was much more flexibility there and there was much more kind of give, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, and I think we often, when we talk about meditation and read about meditation or, you know, portray it, we portray the very monastic, very pure version, um, without talking about the, the actually fantastically flexible, joyful, like wonderful, undisciplined version that, that people have always practiced across history. How has writing these books changed the way you think about attention, the way we invested attention and how we spend attention and how things hijack our attention? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what I've learned over time is rather than seeing my attention as being taken from me, of instead watching what happens to my attention at certain moments, you know, and so... It's the kind of commonplace narrative at the moment is to say, oh, well, those those apps are addictive and your phone's bad for you and it's it's grabbing your attention and you can't stop. Actually, I I mean, sure, but I don't think that explains all of it because I'm willingly going there and there are plenty of other addictive things that I'm not engaging with. Mm-hmm. And so at those moments, instead, I've learned to watch my attention and see why I'm giving it away and ask what's happening here. And in those moments, it's because I'm anxious. The apps aren't doing anything to me. I'm turning to them to try and relieve something in me. And again, like it it comes back to my meditation practice and to my mindfulness practice. I try and notice the feeling behind that urge and that desire and that that repetition that is compelling me back Mm. and try and work with the feeling behind it rather than worrying too much about you know what other people are doing to me like it's it's only my behavior that I can control hmm. and there's huge clues to to how I'm feeling when I'm behaving in that way and so often I learn that I'm worried about something or other that I haven't really noticed at that point mm-hmm. and I'm I'm trying to soothe it with you know with these lovely apps that fill my attention up for a while and make everything feel okay and then tip over into anxiety again because I'll come across a news story or something like that that, yes. that suddenly becomes yes. terrifying. Yes. Um, much better to watch my own behaviour before I, I do it and to notice and, and see what I can do about the root of it. How do you think about how much to engage with the news? This is a thing I always struggle with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I think about that a lot because, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why I left Twitter was because actually... Mm. 
I, I realised how focused it was not only around bad news and, mm-hmm. you know, and the kind of the vir- virality of bad news, mm-hmm. um, but also about the way that we responded to bad news and the way that, like, we almost felt like we had to show care by being angry. And so I realised that I was opening up Twitter every morning and there would be immediately like 20, 30, 40 things that were designed to evoke my anger straight away. And it was a terrible start to the day. And the, the problem with the logic of this is that, quite rightly, this stuff should make you angry. It's infuriating, yeah. it's terrible, it's cruel, it's awful, it's, you know, and it's incessant. But as a as like one tiny human being, my brain just wasn't designed to handle all of this bad news. It, it you know it, it was designed to handle the bad news that affected me, but it it was more than than I could process to worry about the whole world's bad news in one go, and and that was just making me feel incredibly helpless. And so now I I deliberately do not consume any news through social media. Full stop. Mm. And and I also. And here's, like, here's a really difficult discipline in, in these times. I don't comment on it on social media and I don't mm-hmm. get involved in the debates because I actually think that, like, the, the test that I give myself is, like, can I say something about this without adding to the violence of the world? Mm. Mm. The answer is, like, always no. <laughs> like, yes. Ex- yes. Except for stuff that I'm truly expert in, in, in which case I should definitely speak up and when I've got mm. skin in the game... But actually, it's made me realise, like, practising that question has made me really notice the number of times that I was ready to shoot my mouth off Mm. about something I knew very little about. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now I consume my news from newspapers. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, a novel idea. A novel idea. But I I have three newspaper apps on my phone, and I read all three of them every morning, and they are fascinatingly self limiting. Like, that's the only point of the day that I consume news. It's amazing. Like, they take me 10, 15 minutes to get through. I read the world news. I read the national news. I read a bit of the comment. And then there's nothing else to read. And then I get on with my day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, and if there's an action I can take, I take it. But most mm-hmm. of the time, I can't. And, and me going on and shouting on Twitter, it turns out, was not actually an action. It was just me making a noise to to howl in pain at all the awful things that I was witnessing. It's not about compassion fatigue. It's actually about where I point that compassion usefully and productively rather than turning it inward all the time. Mm. And it's, Mm. you know, I'm I'm trying to train myself to just be kinder to myself and more useful to the world at the same time. Like, I Mm. I think both are true if we Mm -hmm. we get it right. Mm Mm-hmm. Feels right to me. One thing I want to be sure to ask, <laughs> one thing I want to be sure to ask you about was um, your cold water swimming because I think there's such a there's such an ice bath craze now, which I don't think yeah. quite gets at um, some of the magic that you discovered in cold water <laughs> swimming. Um, yeah, I'm curious what what about it do you enjoy that maybe gets lost in the um, yeah. sort of quick fix like. Let's do this for five minutes every day. Yeah, it's such a human response, isn't it, to take cold water swimming and to turn it into an ice bath. I mean, fine, like, like do what you like. But actually, yeah. the 
we rob things of their joy and their pleasure when we try and reduce them to their bare mechanics. And and when we try and measure, like I think this, this, this urge to measurement is the problem. And I noticed very soon on when I started talking about my cold water swimming, which I was always talking about as an individual practice and not as like, you know, recommendation, was people were like, how long do you stay in for? How cold is it? How far do you go? Like, are you losing weight from it? That was like a huge one. Like diet culture got its little claws into that, that lovely thing right away. Um, and I, like at the beginning, I was measuring too. Like I was like, how long, you know, I was measuring, I was timing myself. I was bringing a thermometer in with me. And I realized that the best way to defeat those questions was to not measure myself. Hmm. And that made it really clear to me why I was doing it, which is just entering this incredible space that you enter when you get into a body of cold water. It's so beautiful out there, you know, and, you know, I, I go out into the sea and so I'm, you know, that's naturally a beautiful landscape, but everything changes on a sensory basis about your experience of the world when you're immersed in cold water. You know, you can't not attend to your body. You're feeling your skin all the time. The way the soundscape changes, the light changes because you're surrounded by reflective water. There's beautiful movement in the water. Like it takes you straight into the moment which we find so hard to do and the only thing that will take you out of the moment is bloody well measuring it (laughs) (laughs) so I, I try and invite people to a don't do it if you don't feel like it in the first place. Like if you feel like you're really forcing yourself to do it, to do it please don't. It's not for mm. everybody. Nobody has to do this. But if you're called towards doing it, then go in there and notice. Like you have to pay attention to your body's signals because otherwise you're going to get very cold and you're, you know, you're going to get hypothermia. And what really worries me about some of these these kind of more measured practices is that actually they're telling us to override our body's signals. Mm. There's, there's no set amount of time you should stay in the water. You should get out when you begin to feel too cold or if you if your hands begin to go numb. Like there is no amount that you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. be there. Go there and be there. And it's beautiful. And it's mm. so simple. Is there one um, practice that, you know, as people are listening to this and maybe want to, you know, they're feeling um, apprehensive about the onset of winter. <laughs> they'll probably be listening in the middle of winter, but maybe they're running yeah. into midwinter yeah. fatigue. Are there, what are some practices or, or things they, that you would encourage maybe them to try mm-hmm. to, to cope with um, or just shift their mindset about the, the, the often dreariness that's that thick and that can come along with a, a long winter. I think that's yeah, that's right. And I for me, one of the big things in winter is light. Mm. I'm really thinking about how I'm lighting my my whole existence during winter. And I like I really learned this from visiting Scandinavian countries. They will always have candles burning in the afternoon. And they're not like, I, I've got this line that I write in my um, my subset quite often, which is make candlelight ordinary. <laughs> <And I think, laughs> Normalise candlelight, I like that. Normalise candlelight. Like, we so often see that as like a, something that we do for a special occasion. But if you go to Scandinavia, all through the winter, they'll be burning simple candles all day long. 
and it's a it's a warm light against the cold winter light so even when when it's daytime they'll still be burning them because it warms the space up it offers comfort it offers solace and it it talks to us about home and about the kind of ancestral fire. So if you do nothing else, light a candle in the daytime and treat yourself to that, give yourself that little bit of extra light. But also, you know, string up string lights everywhere, light your garden, light, you know, put lamps everywhere, give yourself the light that your body's craving. But at the same time, acclimatized to the day and the night as it actually is so I always say to people step outside at dawn step outside at dusk notice the change in the light let your show your body that the days are changing because your body knows how to take over from there and that might change your sleeping patterns for example it might change when you're tired and instead of fighting that lean into it you know go to bed a bit earlier And I write in Wintering about this very natural pattern that humans fall into in the absence of electric light, which is in winter, the first and second sleep. So historically, we woke up in the middle of the night. We we went to sleep early because what else can you do when the the evenings are closed, closed in? But we woke in the middle of the night and there's lots of documentation of how that was like a really valued time for people in the middle of Mm. winter that they were up in the night and it was this kind of intimate time. There was no work that could be done. It was this moment when you talked, you had sex, you spent time with your children, you, you know, had a cup of, (laughs) had a a hot drink and, Mm. and sort of rested and people used to value it. And now we, we often label it insomnia. And I, and actually, I think if we can embrace our natural sleeping patterns during that time, we can, we can actually like take a lot of the bite out of winter. Our bodies mm. are showing us how to do it mm. and we're struggling against it and, and medicalizing it and pathologizing it. But we need to let our nights be a bit longer in winter. That, that's what mm. we were designed to do. That's what our bodies know how to do. Catherine, this has been truly a, a, a pleasure. I'm so I'm so grateful for your insights <laughs> you. and your time. So thank you so so much. It's been really lovely talking to you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you again to Catherine May. Here are five things I'm taking from this episode. I think the biggest one, number one, is to think of time cyclically, not linearly, which means I can't always be marching forward. I have to let the cycle do its work. I like to think of this a lot, especially in a work or exercise context. After you've had a performance of some sort, after you've pushed to get to a certain peak, could be a race, marathon, triathlon, a important game, could be an intense period of work to get to a presentation or the end of a quarter, you have to let yourself recover before you can do that again. Two is the way Catherine characterizes the spiritual component of everyday duties and chores. We often think of spirituality as existing in this sort of monastic-like vacuum where there are no distractions, but that's not really realistic in a world where we all have responsibilities and things we need to do. And understanding that the way we approach those responsibilities and the way we care for those responsibilities and duties can be its own spiritual practice. Three, I liked her point about how she often uses social media as a way to quell anxiety or anger and get stuck in this checking loop because I do the same thing so often. And it can feel, it can be a way to feel like you're doing something, but often just leads to more anger and anxiety. And a better use of that time might be to actually like sit with that 
anger and anxiety and not try to push it away by getting on social media and potentially, as she says, shouting and adding to the violence of the world. For, I gotta be honest, I kind of liked that she dunked on the ice bath bros. Sorry, <laughs> not because anything's inherently wrong with cold plunges. I actually enjoy cold showers myself, but more because she goes at our tendency to turn it into yet another metric or badge of honor, another thing we have to measure as opposed to just another experience we can have. And then five, normalized candlelight. Love that one. Put it on a t-shirt. Put it on a bumper sticker. Just make sure you credit Catherine May. In addition to wintering, if you want to hear more from Catherine, she has also written something of a companion book called Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age, as well as a book titled The Electricity of Every Living Thing, A Woman's Walk in the Wild to Find Her Way Home. Thanks to the rest of the Growth Equation team, Steve Magnus, Brad Stahlberg, Chris Douglas, Nate Meckler, and John Summerford. And thanks to you for listening. We will be back on Monday with another episode of The Coach Up. Have a great weekend, and as always, farewell.